The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So as you know, we're taking a, a bit of a break from the Life of David series, and we're doing a series during this Lenten season to sort of lead us up into the Easter celebration, which is just a couple of weeks away. And so in last, and the, 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 the series we're calling is Glory, and it's a look at what Scripture teaches us about uh, our future glory, what heaven, in essence, will be like. Um, in last week's message, I talked about what a hazy and distorted picture of heaven that many of us have. Uh, Hollywood has given us its own image of heaven, and it's often cast as people floating on clouds or playing harps. Or it could be portrayed as like a, a Disney World-like place where our every wish comes true. Um, I don't know if any of you saw that movie, Defending Your Life. It's probably too old for most of you, but it gives us this picture of heaven where he's at this amazing diner eating the most fatty foods imaginable, but he gains no weight, and uh, picturing that that's what heaven might be like. And as, as silly as these caricatures of heaven may be that are given to us by the world, uh, I'm not sure that we as Christians have necessarily a more accurate understanding of what the afterlife is going to be like. Um, I suspect that many of you may have a picture of heaven that's sort of this dreamlike state where we're all floating as uh, spirits. Or maybe we imagine being dressed in white robes, gathering around God's throne in one endless worship service that just carries on until eternity. And I think the problem with these views of heaven is not only are they not accurate, but they don't excite us very much, do they? In fact, as I shared last week, if we're really honest... I think the dirty secret that many of us may hold in our hearts is I'm not really sure heaven is necessarily going to be better than earth. I'm not really convinced of how awesome and exciting it's going to be. I think actually, truthfully, especially because we live in America, in a country where so much is offered to us and the truth is this, life in America, a really good day in America is actually pretty good, isn't it, right? You say, I don't know if it could get much better than this. My primary focus in last week's message was to address this objection that many people have of viewing heaven as this exclusive club that everyone is desperately trying to get into, while God on the opposite side of it is trying to do everything he can to limit the people who actually come in. And trying to keep people out. But as I unpacked last week, um, the story that the Bible tells is quite different than that. It's the story of a human race that has rejected a relationship with God and the plans that he has for our lives. And so what we, we looked at that last week, at that, that story in the garden, was in essence Adam and Eve declaring to God, we don't trust you. We don't trust what you've told us. And they rebelled against him in that mistrust. And what we see in Scripture is that all of us have this natural bent like Adam and Eve to turn our backs on God. 
to reject his authority, his leadership over our lives, to really, in essence, want to be a God unto ourselves, that we get to decide what we want for ourselves and not submit to what God. A thousand years ago, he came to restore that broken relationship with God. And his death on the cross was definitely about the forgiveness of sins, but it was so much more than that. His mission was to restore God's rightful place of leadership in our lives. And that is why he constantly preached about this kingdom of God, to establish this kingdom of God through his ministry. It is to restore God's rightful rule over our lives. Now, next week, we're going to sort of look at the cosmic implications of this and what it means for creation. We're going to focus a little bit maybe more personally uh, today and how that plays out in our walk with God. Uh, But it's in this broader context of what happened at the beginning of creation and what Christ came to do, that we have to understand what heaven is going to be like. What makes heaven, heaven in other words, why it is supposed to be a place of such great comfort and joy to the believer is because God's presence, his immediate, felt, visible presence would be with his people for eternity, forever. Dallas Willard makes this really provocative statement in light of that truth. And he says, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who in his considered opinion can stand it. It might prove helpful to think occasionally of how exactly I would be glad to be in heaven should I, quote, make it. Will it be like a nice air-conditioned luxury hotel with unlimited room service and spectacular amenities for eternity? I often wonder how happy and useful some of the fearful, bitter, lust-ridden, hate-filled Christians I have seen involved in church or family or neighborhood or political battles would be if they were forced to live forever in the unrestrained fullness of the reality of God. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? That's what the whole focus last week was, was a heart fit for heaven. Is it a place that I would even want to be based on what's happening in my life in the present? Well, for today, I want to look at what the Bible actually describes as what the eternal destiny of the believer is going to be. And what we're going to see is this whole phrase that is probably most commonly used is dying and go to heaven. You know, when I die, I'm going to heaven. It's actually really not terminology used in Scripture at all. The Bible would actually describe the afterlife quite differently. And then I want to look in the second part of the message as to how that biblical picture of heaven ought to affect the way we live our lives in the present. So we can start with a simple question is this. Where is heaven? I mean, where do we locate it in our universe? I think we typically think of heaven as a faraway place, way beyond the reaches of earth. God has put it in some very far galaxy that is unreachable to us. And maybe that idea of the outer limits of space might be a good way to describe how we typically picture heaven. 
I think our natural instinct when I were, if you were to say, look to heaven, would be to look up, right? It's a natural instinct is heaven. We have her earth here where we live, surrounded by this atmosphere. And then beyond our atmosphere is what we call space. And then somewhere we don't know exactly would be heaven, way beyond space. But in the Bible, heaven isn't pictured so much as a specific location on the edges of our universe, way beyond our access, but actually as a... I geek out on all the time because one of my little pet projects is to kind of study as a layperson quantum mechanics and string theory and all of this, and it's very fascinating to me how the whole world of physics is actually confirming a, a biblical cosmology. And if you ever want to geek out with me, let's talk, all right? And we'll sit around and talk about Schrodinger's equation and all of this and, and all of that, okay? Um, but anyway, that's not in my notes. I don't know why I went into that. Um, <laughs> but what the Bible seems to suggest is this. Heaven is a dimension that is all around us where God dwells, but we cannot most of the time see it. But sometimes heaven opens up to us. And the Bible is filled with these stories. Abraham and Sarah's servant, Hagar, and her son Ishmael were sent away by Abraham and Sarah. And they went into the wilderness and they had this flask of water that eventually ran out. And Hagar, as a mother, was so distressed, she didn't want to watch her son die. And so she walked away and cried in a distance away. And in Genesis 21, verse 17, it says, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. The king of Aram sent his army to capture the prophet Elisha. And they came at night, and the armies of the king surrounded the city so that when the servant woke up, he opened the door and he saw this army encamped around the house. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 to 17, it says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right before the apostle Stephen was stoned, we find this occurrence in Acts 7. Verse 54 to 56. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious to gnash their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Spirit, looked, Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. These are just a few of the many examples of heaven being described as an unseen spiritual dimension where God dwells, which surrounds us and breaks into our dimension whenever God wills. Let me give you actually one final example that I believe may be valid for our modern times. Some of you are familiar with the story of Jim Elliot. 
He was actually a Wheaton College graduate. And he, along with some other graduates from Wheaton, went to Ecuador with a mission to reach this unreached people group that they call the Alcas. They were so secluded from the rest of society that the only interactions with them led to death, you know? They just would spear these oil employees who had come to drill oil in the Amazon jungle. But they are actually now known as the Huarani. And they began to do these exchanges of gifts through this airplane. They invented this very interesting system of lowering gifts through buckets. And after they did this through an airplane flyovers for a number of times, they finally felt like there was enough rapport established with the Huarani that they could actually now see them in person. And so at first they were given a warm reception. But then suddenly men came out of the the, the jungle with spears and they killed all five of these missionaries. This picture was found from a camera that was found in the river when a rescue party came to reclaim the bodies of these men. It was a picture that the missionaries had taken after they landed the plane. This is just moments before their death. What's so amazing about this story is that Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth Elliott, and Nate Saint, the pilot, the dead pilot, his sister, Rachel Saint, years after their death, actually moved into this Huarani village to share the gospel with the very people who killed their loved ones. And through their gospel witness, many of these Huarani became saved. And they talked with this one particular woman named Dawa. And she told the story because she was there at the beach when the men were being killed. And she pointed in this canopy in the opposite side of the beach and said, when the men were killing your men, I saw lights floating above the trees and I heard foreigners singing a song that was like the singing I've heard from you guys. And they didn't know what to make of that testimony. And so they talked with the five men that also were involved with killing the missionaries. And four of the five men said, we heard and saw the same thing. We saw the lights and we heard the music, the same kind of gospel music you guys have played to us. We heard in the trees. Now, I don't know what to make of a testimony like that. But what some people have wondered is, is it possible that this was an angelic choir singing to welcome these men into glory. I don't know, but maybe. And so what we see is this picture of heaven that is another dimension that is surrounding us all the time but can break into our world as God wills. So then I turn to this question. So then what happens when the believer dies? Where do we go? What's our destination? The Bible tells us that when we die, our souls are separated from our bodies. We go immediately to be 
with the Lord. While Jesus was dying on the cross, he told the thief who was crucified next to him, in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't have the time to get into all the technicalities of it, but paradise is not traditionally equated with heaven, okay? It's sort of considered its own special place. But what Jesus makes clear is whatever this paradise is, I will be there with you, and it's going to happen immediately. Not at some time later, but right away, you will be with me in this paradise. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 8, it says this, Paul says this, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says something interesting here. He talks about a separation of the spirit from the body and says that will necessarily happen in death and so that I am away from my body with the Lord in whatever the state after death is going to be like. Now, you may be getting a bit confused, have been trying to make an argument for the fact that heaven is not a place where we float around in the clouds in some invisible realm like some disembodied spirits. But I've just now painted a picture that seems to contradict that, right? Is that it seems like that's exactly what's being said right now. Um, the key point is this, that this is a temporary condition. This is not how we are going to spend eternity. The technical team the theologians use is the intermediate state. John chapter 14 verse 2 says this. Jesus talking here. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is telling his disciples, I am leaving, and one day you too will join me in this place that I'm preparing for you. What's interesting is this, is that actual word that he uses for rooms in the Greek does not describe a a permanent dwelling. That actual word that he chose to use for rooms is a temporary dwelling. In fact, it's often used to describe a stopover place on a journey to a final destination, but it is not the final destination. That's interestingly the Greek word that Jesus, that, that Jesus is using here in this passage. Um, so then we turn to this question. What is our final destination? How are we going to spend eternity? And I would argue that what the Bible says is this. The ultimate hope and destiny of the believer is to experience resurrection being raised to life in our new physical bodies. The truth is this. We could get very sloppy with our terminology when we talk about the afterlife. Basically, using terms like immortality or the afterlife or life after death or resurrection, basically interchangeably. Even thinking about resurrection and going to heaven as basically the same thing, and they're not the same. When the Bible talks about resurrection, it's talking about something very specific as an event that's going to occur after death. Resurrection refers to some event 
post-death, where we will be given new life with a new physical body, just like Jesus experienced after his death. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 20, I think, lays it out really well when Paul says to the Corinthian believers, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we are not going to spend eternity as some bodiless spirits floating in some invisible spiritual realm called heaven. That's why Paul says Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of our own resurrection. The first fruits is the first of a harvest that is ready to be harvested. And what that does is it's a sign for the harvest to come. And so what the message of the Bible is this, is the grants that same resurrection one day in our own lives. Romans 8 verse 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is such an important emphasis in scripture is that the afterlife involves a physicality, not just some spiritual existence into the next realm. But the distinctive about the Christian teaching in the afterlife is that it's going to be of a physical nature. We're going to be given new bodies, and the New Testament is in pains to make sure emphatically that we understand this point. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 to 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what we know that what, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is also the promise of resurrection. We will be like him when we finally see him face to face in our resurrection bodies. And once we receive our new resurrection bodies, we're going to live in those bodies with God for eternity in a new physical earth. That's what scripture teaches. Look at Revelation 21 Verse 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. It's an amazing vision of our future, isn't it? So there's this moment in our future that's going to be known as the resurrection, when we will all be given new physical bodies, and then a new physical earth will descend. But what's interesting is it says it's not just a new earth, but a new heaven and a new earth. So whatever we're referring to as this invisible plane where God dwells in heaven right now, it says basically that those two worlds are going to come together in this eternal state where now God dwells among his people, where we will see him as he truly is. That's why I don't think it's so accurate to say, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Maybe that's true of what we're talking about in this intermediate state. But our eternal destiny is actually, one day I'm going to be given a new resurrection body, and I'm going to live in a new earth. And it's not me so much going to heaven as much as heaven is going to come down to us in this new creation that God is going to make just for us. That's why this voice in verse 3 says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. About having a relationship with a person that's entirely based on writing letters. And you can understand how absolutely frustrating that would be. How many nuances are lost in the written form. That had to be just yesterday. Betty texted me something and I texted her something bad, and she got really angry at me. And she went on a little bit of a rant. And then I had to tell her, I was just joking. You know? But you missed the joke because you couldn't see the little smile on my face. And I didn't add an emoticon, which I should have. <laughs> or I guess we call them emojis now, right? So there was no emoji. And so she didn't know I was joking, right? That's just the limitation of written communication. And then if you sort of think about communicating by telephone, that's a little better because now you can capture some nuances of tone of voice and things like that. But that's even limiting in its own way. There's something so powerful about seeing somebody face-to-face and actually having a face-to-face relationship with them. And I think that's the picture of heaven. Paul says, right now on earth, we just see through a glass darkly. But one day, it's just going to be like the glass is gone and we see everything perfectly clearly in astonishing, amazing HD, you know? We're limited in our understanding of what this new earth is going to be like compared to our current one, but at least we know it's going to be physical. And these glimpses and images that we get indicate that it's going to be better than our wildest imagining could envision. 
Revelation 21, verse 10 through 11 and verse 21 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The twelve gates were, be- were, 12, uh, were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. Now, I mean, when I read this, I go like, I don't even know what, what John's talking about. I can't envision how gold looks transparent like glass. But you see him fumbling because he's like, I don't have categories for the stuff that I'm witnessing here. So I'm just trying my best to describe what I'm being shown here. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its flaw for every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, it's hard to know what aspects of these images are literal, and which ones are figurative. But these are some pretty amazing descriptions of what this eternal state for the believer is going to look like. Now, if this is our eternal destiny, what are its implications for this present life? And what I offer to you this is that God invites us to experience a foretaste of his nearness and power that we're going to know fully one day in the life to come, in the resurrection, but to know that in our present lives. It's interesting. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from the fruit, and they were told that if you eat from this tree of life, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you will die. Actually physically die, did they? But what's interesting is that the punishment they received for their disobedience of eating the forbidden fruit was a broken relationship with God and banishment from the garden. In other words, the Bible repeatedly seems to describe our lost condition apart from God as spiritual death because it argues that God alone is the source of life. And when we reject him and turn away from him, we have lost our connection to life itself. The Apostle Paul talks about our condition before we are saved by Christ in the same way. Ephesians 2 verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead, spiritually dead. Ephesians 4 verse 18 says, They are darkened, speaking of those who are lost, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They are separated from the life that God alone can provide to us. And so when we are saved, the Bible uses the language of being given new life now. A resurrection of sorts, of a spiritual sort. Ephesians 2, verse 4 to 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. In other words, what Paul seems to be saying is, as a result of this new life, your relationship with God is restored. You are now reconnected to the source of life. And so now spiritual life flows in you and you now have gained access to these heavenly realities that before you were utterly dead to, you were clueless to, you had no access to. In John chapter 3, Jesus has this interesting conversation with this religious leader named Nicodemus who is hearing Jesus' teaching and is just so curious to know about these spiritual realities that Jesus is talking about, about the kingdom of God. And so in John chapter 3, verse 8, 3 to 8, and verse 12, it says this. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with every born of the Spirit. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, there's so much here that could be unpacked, and we just don't have time to look at it all. But in essence, what's interesting to me is this. We all are familiar with this term being born again. And we most often associate it, this idea of being born again as the forgiveness of sins that gives us eternal life, and that's true. But if you actually understand this term born again in the context of John 3, it's not actually talking about forgiveness of sins, is it? It's talking about Nicodemus being awakened to a spiritual reality of the heavenly realms that he has no clue about. In other words, it's, you can almost picture him as living the materialist's perspective of all I see is what I can touch with my hands, smell with my nose, see with my eyes. That is the world we live in. And Jesus is saying, there is so much more to this universe than that, Nicodemus. There is a whole spiritual world that is really the real power in this universe that enlivens everything, that causes things to move like the wind blowing in the trees. And you see the action of that spiritual realm, but Nicodemus, you don't know a thing about it unless you are born again by the work of God in your life. Then you will be awakened to these spiritual realities. And that's the picture of the Christian life. could see before. The realities of heaven, even in this life, of God acting and moving and working all around us through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's the invitation to new life of being born again, is to now, even in this present life, to come alive and awake to spiritual realities of the presence and the power of God in us. And the truth is we have a role to play in that process because even as Christians, we have a choice to make of living by the flesh or living by the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So when we become saved, the Spirit of God is with us. But there is a choice that we can walk in that Spirit and in the power that the Spirit provides or walk in the flesh by my own strength, by my own wisdom, by my own desires. Even as a believer, that choice is before me. John Ortberg says this, salvation doesn't mean simply being rescued from the consequences of our wrong choices. It doesn't mean being delivered into better circumstances. It means being changed. Salvation isn't primarily a matter of going to the good place. It's about becoming good people. We need to be saved inwardly from our anger, despair, lust, greed, arrogance, and egotism. If our inner person is not transformed, our outer location won't matter much. It's not so much about getting to heaven, but getting heaven in us, right? The work of God in our lives. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If heaven represents the realm where God's will is perfectly enacted, then the prayer of Jesus is let that heavenly realm break through this earthly realm. Let your will be done among your people and in your creation. That's the life we experience this side of heaven. As citizens of God's kingdom, the way we walk into that life is we live it by faith, by faith. Dallas Willard talked a lot about this relationship between belief, among belief, fusage, and faith. And he helped me to understand what had been confusing to me for so many years. And I don't think it's the only way to talk about it, but hopefully it'll help you as well. Let me see if we can sort of unpack it like this. We all carry around belief in our life. Okay? We believe a lot of things, or at least we say we do. The problem, though, is that we don't really know what are genuine beliefs. And what are just stated beliefs that, truth be told, we don't actually really believe. But knowledge comes when we actually test our beliefs and put them into action. Because when we do that, we actually gain knowledge about these truths that we say we believe. But now we have firsthand knowledge, firsthand experience by walking in action in those beliefs. Then faith comes from that knowledge. That knowledge will lead to faith, which is confidence for future situations that we haven't faced yet. But because of our knowledge of past experiences, in other words, our firsthand experiencing, we have confidence to face the future or the things unknown, unseen. And that's very often used to try to help us understand faith, and that's the idea of a chair, okay? Now, you may believe that this chair is strong enough to support your weight. I don't know if you've ever broken a chair by sitting on it. <laughs> I have. <laughs> so this is not an automatic thing, okay? Not every chair can bear the weight, okay? But there's this belief that this chair is strong enough to support me sitting on it. But here's the thing. You really don't know 
until you actually sit on the chair, right? But the moment that you sit on that chair, that belief is replaced by knowledge. It's not so much that I have to say, I believe this chair can support my weight. It says, I know this chair can bear my weight because I sat on it. I have, in other words, firsthand experiential knowledge that this chair is strong enough to bear my weight. And then what happens is the next time I come across that chair or maybe even a chair similar to it, that knowledge of my past experience sitting on and it's going to be okay, that is faith. Confidence in an event that hasn't even happened yet, which comes from firsthand experience of my past events, of putting my belief into action. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says it like this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Does that make sense? It is confidence in what hasn't even happened yet, but it's a future event, and yet nevertheless I am confident because of what I'm walking through with God in this present life, putting my belief into action and seeing God to be true to his word. And out of that comes the longing and the hope for heaven. That if this is a glimpse of God's goodness and faithfulness and power in my life, how great is heaven going to be when I see him face to face? And I want to just challenge you with that. Do you know God experientially in that way? Because that is where the hope of heaven arises I haven't died yet. None of us have in this room. That death awaits us. But based on my present testing and experiencing of my beliefs, I am confident that I have and I trust in the right person, in the God that would see me to glory and one day resurrect my body as Christ's body was resurrected. I'm not saying by any means that this is an easy journey. It's not, but it's one that every believer, I sincerely believe, has to walk into. Gary Black, and I apologize, this is a bit of a long quote here, but I think I just really like it because of the honesty with which he shares this faith struggle. And he says this, Gary Black, by the way, is the guy who was kind of a a mentee of Dallas Willard and was there sort of at the tail end of his life and actually witnessed his passing. And this is what Black says as, as he is trying to wrestle with the things that Dallas Willard was trying to teach them about faith. I have to admit that it took me a long time, and I still have a very long ways to go to actually understand what Dallas was teaching about the invisible, spiritual, transcendent realities of the kingdom of God. I listened intently to his words and ideas, took notes and asked questions, smiled, nodded my head, and acted like I was tracking with him step by step. And I think that is what most of us do when we come to these kinds of ideas. We listen, and we have a sense that at some level, what we are hearing is true, or likely true, and we profess belief because I didn't live as if what I was hearing was true. Dallas had this haunting saying, we always act up to the level of our true beliefs. Unless we act on what we say we believe in, we never develop knowledge 
of whether or not what we profess belief in is actually credible and trustworthy. What I began to learn from Dallas's teaching about the reality, reliability and robustness of the invisible substances of God and his kingdom took me years to actually put into action in my life. And I'm still learning to trust what it is I say I believe in. All of which means in some areas of my life, I don't actually know by experience what I am talking about. Which makes me something of a hypocrite, an actor. And it is in these areas where belief has not been replaced by knowledge and experience that I am desperately lacking confidence or faith in my relationship with God. What a powerfully honest statement, huh? In my journey of faith, there are still areas of my belief that remain untested because of my cowardice. I am too afraid of what might happen if I attempt to put into action what I claim I believe. It may be about courageously facing your fears because you know that God is with you. Or to have self-control to resist the temptation because you believe God is something better for you. Or it could be about claiming a promise and waiting on God in the midst of the need that you have in your life rather than trying to engineer your own outcomes. This life of faith looks like so many things. Black goes on and he says this, and I'll just close with this. Here is one of my problems. I find it hard sometimes in a cynical, materialistic world to fully place my trust in these statements when so much of what we are told today is nuanced and spun. Sometimes I feel like the Bible has a tendency to over-exaggerate its claims. These promises are just so magnanimous, so revolutionary. I want to believe them. I want to go all in, throw caution away, and jump gleefully into the open air of these hopes. But the risk of disappointment looms heavy. We live in a world where people are always over-promising and under-delivering. I think it's much more likely that I do not experience those statements in my life as an ongoing reality often enough, and therefore in order to protect myself, it's easier to discount the claims than it is to inspect my doubts. Therefore, my fears and pride prevent me from acting on what I say I believe and to gain knowledge of God's faithfulness. And my Christian culture lets me get away with simply professing belief in the truth of these statements without ever experiencing their reality. We've become good at finding ways of rationalizing away the biblical description of Jesus' teachings and vision of the kingdom of God and its power. Let's pray. I think there's this really unfortunate um, casting of the narrative of heaven and hell as basically God is this stingy deity who really doesn't want a whole lot of people in paradise and is in heaven and um, therefore has created almost these arbitrary hurdles that you have to jump over to prove yourself. And who wouldn't react against a God like that if that actually were who God is? But when we actually understand heaven and hell in the broader context of the story that the Bible tells, it tells a rather different story. It says that we are the ones who have turned away from God, the source of life. 
And God's desire is to restore what was broken by our choice to turn our back on Him. Our rational minds, we're trapped. We're in bondage, like Nicodemus. And there may be some haunting feelings in our heart that, man, if that life were true, it would be awesome. And so out of all of this doubting and lack of faith, we end up with this sort of ridiculous notion of heaven as just, you know, I said the sinner's prayer and I hope that's good enough for God. And I don't know, my life is a mess and I have no idea where God is in any of it. But maybe if I just pass that bare minimum standard, God's going to let me in through those pearly gates and, you know, then we could sort it all out in eternity. And that eternity basically represents for us a Disneyland where I get every wish that I want and God just stays out of my way and lets me live my life the way I want. But what God would say is, no, I have so much more for you than you could ever understand. And under your own leadership, your life is never going to go the way that you hope. You're not able to. But under my leadership, under my authority, you can have the life that you've always dreamed of. And to walk into that life, it takes faith in this side of heaven. One day, we won't need that faith because we will see him face to face. And all of our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled in that place. But until then, in this life, God calls us to experience the glimpses of what awaits us in the resurrection by this act of faith of testing your beliefs and claiming the promises of God through action so that you can grow not just in beliefs about God but in the knowledge of God that results in faith for the future hope that you have in Him. The hope of heaven, the hope of a new heaven and a new earth and our resurrected bodies. Wherever that faith struggle is for you, wherever it is that you are seeking to make this more real in your life. My strong and sincere desire out of preaching this message this morning was not to throw it at you like a threat, but to give it to you as an invitation. An invitation to a life that God is asking you to walk into by faith. And to see some of the incredible things that God desires to do in your life if you would only hand the reins of your life to him. So would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will lead us in some songs of response as we come to the Lord in prayer.